Welcome to the Harvard Center for International Development, or CID as we call it, Beyond COVID podcast. This is a series of conversations on various dimensions of COVID response and recovery. Our goal with these conversations and with CID's Beyond COVID research initiative is to use the lessons learned and capitalize on innovations sparked by the pandemic to address losses and more broadly, reimagine global development in the post-COVID era. My name is Akil Merchant, and I'm a student at Harvard College and a CID student ambassador. This week, we are joined by Dr. Aisha Yousafzai, Associate Professor of Global Health at the Harvard School of Public Health. I'm sitting down with Aisha on March 11th, 2022, to discuss early child development and childhood nutrition. Aisha, thank you for joining us today. Thanks so much, Akil. It's a pleasure to join you. So I'm aware that you have an extensive background in early child development, and you've done a lot of work on how nutrition and education networks can be leveraged to improve youth health outcomes, including within Pakistan. I was wondering if you could share with listeners a bit more insight into your research and how you've pivoted throughout the pandemic. Sure. So maybe I'll take a step back and start with why early childhood development. Um, So in a global context, the biggest challenge that young children face, or one of the big challenges they face, is that about 43%, 250 million young children in the first five years of life are unable to meet their developmental milestones. Um, And this is through multiple risk factors, which are biological in nature, um, including malnutrition, as well as psychosocial risk factors, which can include lack of early learning opportunities. It can include the caregiving quality they receive because, for example, there might be high prevalence of maternal depression. There might also be violence that they're exposed to. So these multitude of risk factors impact young children's developmental trajectories. And this in turn has life course consequences. So this will impact the ability of young children to learn as they go forward in their middle childhood and adolescence. So it will ultimately affect educational attainment. It will ultimately affect health and physical and mental health outcomes as adults and productivity. So we want to be able to address this risk early on in life, and we want to be able to reduce that significant 43% of young children who are off track so that we can leverage more level playing field between advantaged and disadvantaged children. Um, So that's really what my my research targets. It's how do we intervene to ensure that we reduce those risk factors in early life? And how do we ensure that those interventions are potentially scalable solutions and sustainable solutions through intervention research and implementation research? So to further get into the specifics of your research, I wanted to start off by discussing the Pakistan Early Child Development Scale-Up Trials that you've helped evaluate throughout your career. My understanding is that these trials assess whether there are particular benefits to providing child nutrition services alongside educational interventions aiming to just educate mothers 
about caregiving and the appropriate practices for caregiving. From these studies, what have you considered to be the major factors influencing children's behavioral and development outcomes? Are there particular nuances that we should be looking at and that we should be considering to improve long-term? Sure. So from the wider global evidence, we know that addressing nutritional risks and addressing health risks in young children is an important factor in ensuring they're able to thrive. So ensuring they're able to explore their environment and learn new things. But we know that addressing health and nutrition by itself isn't going to be enough. We also want to ensure that there are increased early stimulation opportunities, which we can consider to be early learning opportunities. So the capacity of children to explore their world through play, which is the way children learn and build relationships with others in their family and also outside of their family. So in the context of Pakistan, similar to many other settings in the world where there is a high number of risk factors for early childhood development, we saw that while there were services providing health and nutrition interventions for young children, such as the multitude of community health worker programs around the world, we also recognized that there was an opportunity to stack interventions that also supported their families, their caregivers, with guidance around how to support early stimulation, early learning opportunities, early caregiving guidance to promote more holistically children's development outcomes. And so we had decided that we wanted to do this through the Lady Health Worker Program in Pakistan, which is a government community health worker program. It has high coverage in rural and remote parts of Pakistan. So it reaches the most vulnerable communities. And the lady health workers do an excellent job in giving health and nutrition guidance to families, um, both targeting pregnant women, lactating women, as well as children in the first five years of life. So they also have trust in the community. And so we believe that they were an excellent, trustworthy frontline worker to stack new interventions around caregiving, parenting support to support the early learning outcomes of young children. So that was the rationale behind that work. And we were able to see through the, the work that we did in partnership with the Lady Health Worker Programme that delivering these additional intervention guidance on parenting support, on caregiving support, on early learning support for very young children, that lady health workers could do this effectively, they could do it feasibly, and it was um, cost effective to be able to integrate these interventions. Um, and we saw immediate impacts on children's cognitive outcomes, their motor development, their language development. We also saw changes in uh, caregiving capacity with mothers that we were targeting, able to provide more early learning opportunities for their youngest children. 
um, as well as improvements and strengthening of the quality of the relationship or the interactions between mothers and young children. Um, and we found that when we revisited these uh, young children two years after the end of intervention, that there were some sustained benefits to their learning and development outcomes. And there were also sustained benefits to the caregiving that um, mothers and families were able to provide for these young children. And since then, there's been so many trials around the world that do similar work in promoting parenting through health platforms, through nutrition platforms, through other community-based platforms, including social protection platforms. And we see that this is a really important strategy for promoting development outcomes. From what you've said, it's clear that encouraging appropriate caregiving practices, whether it's with lady health workers, supporting parents or parents themselves, it's pivotal to children's long-term development, especially as you stack these different interventions. I just think that, however, the pandemic has in some way complicated the role of the pandemic in supporting their children's development and well-being. And in especially low and middle-income countries, are there any trends and shifts that you've observed um, in terms of how this role of the parent has evolved? So I think the COVID-19 pandemic has shone a light on the challenges that families and their youngest children experience. There has there have been a number of surveys throughout the pandemic done in multiple settings around the world that have shown, for example, an increase in poor mental health among caregivers. So that compromises um, the, the capacity to give optimal care. And that's as a result of the stresses because of economic hardships, the stresses that have been brought about by lockdowns and closures of you know, workplaces, of schools and preschools. So these obviously have created increased pressures in households. We've also seen evidence for increased violence um, against children. We've also seen that safety nets for children have been at risk. So for example, early childhood care and education centers were not just important for providing early learning opportunities, they were important in terms of providing, extending caregiving support outside of the home, there were important protection platforms for populations of children, particularly centers that also provide, for example, food supplementation or could flag protection concerns. So we know that across the pandemic, these, these, comp these risk factors were really increasing for poor development. And one really important study conducted by a colleague of mine, Dana McCoy, at the Harvard Graduate School of Education, or led by her, also showed that even before the pandemic, young children had very unequal access to early childhood care and education services, with children in the lowest 
income countries, only about 20% of those children had access to early childhood care and education services, while children in high income countries had, you know, that was about 70 to 80% of access. And then when you bring in the pandemic, about 50% of in-person learning days were lost due to preschool closures, school closures during that period. So those, you know, the fact that you first of all have low access anyway, then on top of that, for the children that do have some access, you have loss of learning days. That has only increased the risk of the number of children off track in their early development. So before we said it was about 250 million, we estimate another 10.75 million children will now be off track. So there's an urgency in how we how we really prioritize um, interventions and make sure that young children are not invisible in the COVID recovery period. And as we progress into a COVID recovery period, I think that early childhood development centers, they illustrate the power of a biopsychosocial model of care. It's an integrated approach to global health delivery that recognizes the solutions to global health inequity. They lie within the broader context of a community beyond a single individual or beyond a single child. And I'm hopeful that this framework will eventually become the global standard but I would like to ask, do you foresee any barriers towards directing such an integrated system within low and middle income countries? Are these challenges, they've definitely pre-existed the pandemic, but have they also been exacerbated by the pandemic? They have definitely been exacerbated by the pandemic. Um, I think the question for us in the research community and in the practice and policy community is, are there lessons learned which will help us shine a light on innovative solutions that might accelerate progress of the types of interventions that we need to reach the most vulnerable young children around the world and to support their caregivers around the world? And by caregivers, I mean family members, but also the frontline workers that work directly with young children. So preschool teachers, um, community health workers as two examples of that. And so here at CID and the Beyond COVID initiative overall, we're hoping to ask, yes, how, what, how we learned from the pandemic, but also how can we apply our learnings to generate long-term gains in international development, even amidst future health crises? So as we look to the future in that light, what do you think are the most pivotal factors to reducing these global disparities? If there is a way for you to allocate the most funding towards certain aspects of early childhood development and child nutrition, what should we be focusing on? I'll give you a couple of examples. One of the things I think the early child development community, the practice community was very good at in the last two years, was modifying, rapidly adapting existing interventions on the ground to ensure that young children and families and their, their educators and others were given support. So whether this meant including home learning supports or using technology 
to reach families, whether it was, you know, technology can be so wide ranging. So it could have been radio broadcasts in some places or media television based um, broadcasts right through to um, using smartphones or using social media. So I think going forward, um, we need to be able to now evaluate those um, modifications to see which ones were helpful and we should think about taking forward in the COVID recovery period with some caution because we also recognize that we don't want the solutions to further exacerbate inequities. So did the technology-based solutions reach everyone fairly or again were some families left more you know, further behind, some families, some children, because they didn't have um, the access to those technologies. So I think we need to do a careful evaluation to see which lessons from the pandemic we can take forward to accelerate progress. I think we also need to think about innovations that might make a strong case for how we address some of the global challenges to that young children will face in the recovery period. So an example of this is some work that we're currently doing in Pakistan, which is a program called LEAPS. So LEAPS recognizes that in the context of the province of Sindh, where we're working, about 84% of three to five-year-olds do not have any access to early childhood care um, and education services. Um, so part of that challenge is, is there a sufficient workforce to provide that service, right? To make sure that every village in, in the province has equitable access to an early childhood care and education service and that workforce is sufficiently trained in child-centered approaches to be able to deliver a high quality service because when children graduate from those programs we want them to be ready to learn at primary school we want them to be able to be ready to take advantage of all that comes after the preschool period and so we created a program where we are training youth in rural communities, female youth um, between the ages of 18 to 24 years of age, who have at least 10 years of formal education to go through a youth training program where they are given the leadership skills, the knowledge and the training to establish their own early childhood care and education programs in villages which do not currently have a service. So by this approach, we're addressing the challenge of the workforce shortage in early childhood care. We're targeting two generations, um, economic and opportunity for young women in Pakistan in a setting where there are gender disparities, especially for rural women in further education and in training and employment opportunities. And at the same time, we're also ensuring that that pathway allows for the youngest children to have access to early childhood care and education. So we're bringing a life course approach 
um, and a human development approach to help to facilitate outcomes for two generations. And I think that's the sort of thinking that we need to have in terms of what can give us our biggest return for our for our investment in in childhood and youth programs. I take it that the solutions are genuinely about sustainable development, but also through, I think, generating community leadership and community building through these young leaders. Thank you so much for joining us today and sharing your insights. You can follow Dr. Yusufzi on Twitter at Aisha underscore Yusufzi. Thanks again to Dr. Yusufzi for taking the time to talk with us today. You can learn more about the Center for International Development and CID's Beyond COVID initiative at cid.harvard.edu. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you back soon.